This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. If you're like most people, you know what it feels like to be so busy. You go through the day checking email, going from meeting to meeting, saying yes when people message you asking if you have a minute. You also know what it feels like to look up at the end of the day and acknowledge that you were busy and then question what you actually got done. This is normal. I remember Gary Keller sharing the idea that anytime in your life you're hitting up against a ceiling of achievement, you're missing a person, either in the form of leverage as somebody that you can delegate to, or in the form of a mentor or coach who can help you shatter that ceiling of achievement and achieve even more. Yet, how to go on that journey of seeking leverage and learning how to delegate, the journey of actually shattering your ceiling of achievement. While it's simple, doesn't mean it's easy. And today is a story of somebody who went on that journey. As a business owner, they struggled with the things that most of us struggle with as leaders, which is letting go, being able to actually delegate because we fear that somebody won't get it done as well as us. And so we hold on to it. And how life forced him to delegate. The loss of a loved one meant that he had to narrow his focus. He had to find a way to increase his income to pay for the medical bills while they were sick. Required that he work less while also making more. He needed to find the one person. And how once he found that person, how he started to block time for thinking so that he had clarity and vision. And how doing those things has helped him on his path to achieve even more in less time with less stress. Our hope as you listen to this episode is that you identify what really resonates with you, that place that you really need to improve. And ask the question, what's the one thing I can do to make that happen? By the end of this episode, you'll have a choice to make. And that'll be whether this episode was an investment of your time or an expense. An expense, you threw it away. There's no return. Yet an investment, you'll have the expectation of a return. And that'll come down to whether you identify that one thing and you put it into action. So with that, let's get into this conversation with Russell Gray. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Russell, when were you first introduced to the one thing? That's hard to say, but it, it was <laughs> obviously sometime after it was written. And uh, now uh, I, I am a, a book junkie. 
And I just love to read. I love to put good ideas in my mind. I like business and investing in the technical side, but I'm really big on mindset and personal development. And I just kept hearing about this book, The One Thing, The One Thing, The One Thing. And so I ordered it and I ordered probably four or five books a week and uh, just had it sitting there on my you know, ready to read shelf so that when I had a gift of time, I could grab it and read it. And that's how I ended up getting into it. Out of curiosity, how long do you think the book was on your shelf before you read it? I'm going to guess if it was typical for me, it could have been in you know a month to three months. That would be that. So the reason I ask is I remember sitting down with our publisher and when you look at the average book that launches like huge spike and then it's just like dead and then nothing. And with the one thing, it was huge spike, went way down. And then after a few years, it's like all of a sudden just started to climb. And I remember asking our publisher, like, why do you think that happened? And he went, oh, simple. People bought the book, but they finally got around to reading it. (laughs) Yeah. And then they tell everybody. That's right. That's how I heard about it. I, I, I heard about it because people were just raving about it. What was going on in your life when you first picked the book up? Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, my backstory is kind of interesting, you know, without making it too long. I got into the mortgage business in 2000 with the idea that I was going to catch a wave, which was a brilliant call. And uh, right up until 2008, I thought I was a really smart guy. 2008 imploded the mortgage industry, took my uh, portfolio, my investment portfolio and my business with it. A very devastating time. And my partner and I had to lay off everybody. And I really kind of put a big part of the company on my back and was just pulling these ridiculous hours. But it was worth it to me to force profit to the bottom line, make sure my wife never had to go through the stress of what we went through losing everything. And I never, ever wanted to have to look at a friend or a team member and let them go because I screwed up because I hadn't seen something coming. So I was kind of in that mindset in 2015. And then I got really, really bad news. My wife was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma in March of 2015. And I realized that somehow... I needed to both increase my income and decrease the amount of time I was working. And that gave me a really tough problem to solve. And I I went looking for answers. I'm imagining, attempting to even imagine, being in your shoes. Where I'm imagining if if that happened to my wife and going, okay, I've got to make more because our bills are about to go way up. And I can't work as many hours. And I imagine hitting that wall of, I don't know what to do. Yet you don't get to accept, I don't know, because you have a reason why you can't accept, I don't know. Failure is not an option. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> take, take it. And, and I want to go here because there's a lot of people right now that they're facing something. There's some challenge in their life that they wish they could better invest their time. They're not sure how to do it, but they may not have enough pain to force them to search for why. How did you begin the search? Well, I mean, I think it starts with the mindset of recognizing that the answers are are probably out there. Almost anything you're facing in life, somebody else has faced at some time. And I think the really generous people take the time to record those thoughts and create uh, books, videos, podcasts. They They give of themselves what they've learned. I'm trying to do that 
here today. Uh, many of the people that my wife was leaning on for advice about how to deal with her situation are people that went through that very situation and just gave of themselves. She had an opportunity uh, at one point to be on our friend Robert Kiyosaki's radio show and share her story just to encourage people. And my wife was a wallflower and being on, the, being on a radio show was the last thing she'd ever want to do. So it started with that mindset. And then I, I reached out to people that I knew that had built a business from a one-man band to a team and had bought back their time and grown their income. And so rather than lock myself in a room and try to figure it out, I, uh, I called up a buddy of mine in Salt Lake City and I said, hey, uh, this is my situation. Can I come spend a day with you? And of course, he graciously said yes. And I knew that if I went to a meeting without a Without an understudy, without a sidekick, we'd have all this great conversation and not a thing would happen, right? So I, uh, I had one of the guys that I had hired a contractor to help me uh, begin with some of the marketing responsibility, which was my primary responsibility that I needed to get off my plate. And I'm a big believer in mentorship. So I think you learn by just hanging around with whoever you're trying to learn from and you learn by osmosis. So I just had this guy shadowing me as much as you could in a virtual world at the time. And uh, he was in Ohio and I was in California. But I said, hey, I want you to come to Salt Lake City. <laughs> so he scheduled to come to Salt Lake City, but he decided to save a few bucks and put himself on standby. And so <laughs> so, so I show up, well, I get ready to, to, to leave and I look at my ready to read bookshelf and I see the one thing sitting there and I just, on a whim, decided that was the book. And I just grabbed it. I threw it in the bag. And, you know, I kind of perused it a little bit on the flight, but it was a short flight. I really didn't get into it. And I had it though. I had it with me. And then I get the call when I get there that he missed his flight and I had to delay the meeting one day. And so now I'm camped out in the hotel room with, with the book and the problem. And that's kind of where the, the two came together. Do you remember what started going through your mind when you read the book? Yeah, the same thing that goes through everybody's mind when they see something brilliant that was so obvious. It was like, why in the world didn't I think of this? How in the world could I be this old and this far down the road and have never heard this before? Uh, I think the greatest brilliance in the world is that kind of brilliance. The simplicity, it, it was just, it was profound. And and once I once I kind of got it, I mean, I read the book through just all the way through, and it was very tempting to stop along the way and 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 try to just start doing it. But I let my subconscious mind do that because I did have the luxury of time. I wasn't pressed up against anywhere I needed to be, and so I just decided to read the book all the way through soup to nuts. And then and then I sat there and I I kind of meditated or contemplated or reflected on the book, and I just started asking myself the question. And what it flushed out in me is um, it. I ran smack into a very, very hard paradigm, an emotional paradigm. You know, when paradigm. You say asking the question, you just start asking, "What's my one thing?" Yeah, what's my one thing? What What is the one thing that I can do that will make everything I have to do either easier or unnecessary? It was like. God, that's so obvious. Okay, <laughs> so so what is that one thing? And and I, you know, I, I mean, I'm a financial strategist. I love leverage. I talk about leverage. I believe in time leverage. I believe in human leverage. I believe in technology leverage. I believe in financial leverage. I mean, I want to be able to do one thing and move many things. I like the flywheel effect from Jim Collins. Is okay. I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to build momentum in that thing, and it starts to compound. The compounding effect. You know, Darren Hardy writes about all of those things. I'm a big believer in all that. But 
you, you know, the thing that was great about this is that it took all of that kind of theory, that conceptual stuff, and it boiled it down to one very simple, actionable exercise. Ask yourself this one question and keep peeling back the layers of the onion. In my case, I got I got the one thing, but I had to fight through a paradigm. And then the one thing led to a second one thing that opened up a whole bunch of stuff. So let's go there because I imagine... All right, here you are. 2008 happens. Business crumbles. You're over-levered. Real bad financial situation. You start to claw your way back. Start your business. You were a one-man show at that time, plus a contractor, right? Uh, well, on my side of it. So my partner and I, Robert Helms, is the host of the show. And he okay. and I are, are partners at, in the real estate guys. And we had many, many businesses we were involved in. I came into it with a mortgage company. He was in the brokerage business. Together, we started a developing company. There's a lot of stuff. But he he really carried the burden along with a third partner uh, on, on our development company because we had a lot of things to clean up there after 2008. And I, I put most of the burden of organizing the business side of the show. He and I would create the show together, but everything else that wrapped around the business, I was doing. Understood. And so it was a lot. So a lot happening. Not a lot of people. Wife gets stage four cancer. You need income to go up, time to go down. You're in a room and you now find yourself asking, what's my one thing? What'd you come up with? Well, I needed to I needed to build a team. I needed to design and build a team. I needed and, to take I needed to create a business model where I could bring people in. I needed to figure out how to transition from where I was, you know, and learning how to delegate. I'd I'd made a lot of mistakes the first time I tried to do it. It was my first foray. I, I was a sales guy most of my career. So I was used to being a one-man band. I yeah. worked with other people, but I was really a maverick and I'm still that way. And and the problem that I had is I didn't know how to let go and I didn't understand the difference in delegation and abdication. I didn't know how to qualify who I was bringing in. And I quickly had to bring in you know, qualified people, get them up to speed fast, and trust them implicitly so I could put 100% of my focus on my wife. And that was a tall order. And I'm like, okay, I got the one thing, which I didn't want to do because I never wanted to lay anybody off again. I never wanted to have negative cash flow making all the mistakes of not knowing how to elevate and delegate and all the things that I've had to learn since then. Uh, and so I had a big emotional resistance to doing it, the blind spot. And But but in that room that day in Salt Lake City, I pushed through and, and I got through kind of level one of the problem, which is, okay, I've got to bite the bullet. I've got to accept, I, I must do this. <laughs> and then the question was, how am I going to do that? Yeah. And here's, and here's what's interesting is people will ask the question, what's my one thing? And they'll come up with a high-level one thing. I need to build a team. You fundamentally understood that that actually wasn't the one thing, like the lead domino, that two-inch little domino at the very beginning that is so small that effortlessly with the flick of a finger would fall. And because the dominoes are lined up, it makes building a team easier or unnecessary. So when you started to... You, you kept asking, what's my one thing that would make doing that easier? And what's the one thing I could do that would make doing that easier? What did you ultimately come down to? Well, I realized that I needed to find the one person mm. who, could, who could do that with me and for me. 
And I was very, very fortunate that I had that one person in my life. Now, whether or not she was available, whether or not she would be willing was a different discussion, but at least I had a candidate. And it, it was my daughter. I have three daughters. She's my middle daughter. And uh, she was homeschooled. And when she was about 16 years old, she got out of high school. Uh, I wasn't of a mind to send a beautiful young 16-year-old homeschooled girl off to college. Uh, so, you know, I had her come apprentice with me in business. And she turned out to be very, very gifted in organization. And she was a blank slate. So I was teaching her uh, things about how I thought things should be done. And she didn't have any resistance. And she took the things that I shared. She found ways to make them better. But she was a voracious student because as a homeschooled uh, student, she, she, you know, I don't know if you have any experience in homeschooling, but in homeschooling, you don't really teach. You, you teach, uh, or you don't teach topics, you teach learning. You teach mm. people how to teach themselves. And so she's extraordinarily resourceful. And she's got this indomitable will and so she came to work and, and we built a couple of million dollar businesses together when she was just a teenager. Hmm. And those businesses, of course, you know, kind of collapsed uh, because of bad business decisions on my part. A big part of it was bringing in quote unquote experienced people who unraveled a lot of the great work that she had done. Uh, and that damaged our relationship because she took great pride in the work she'd done. And I was foolish in that regard. I was enamored of people's resumes instead of their actual results. And then um, and then when everything fell apart, I had to let her go. And, and she took it very personally. Uh, and she's over that now, obviously. Um, but, you know, so we parted company as, as, as uh, colleagues and just stayed, you know, father-daughter. And um, she'd gone off and gained valuable experience and um, built her own relationships and matured as a businesswoman. And then, you know, I, I called her and obviously it's her mother and I explained the situation. And I, I said, you know, I've, I've been able to squirrel away some money. So don't feel like I'm going to bring you in. But if you're willing to give it six months, I will absolutely guarantee you with cash in the bank that you will get paid. It won't be like last time. Um, would you come in and, and, and give it a shot? And she graciously said yes. And of course, you know, the rest turns out to be history. It turned out it worked really well for everybody involved, uh, except that at the end of the day, my wife didn't make it. I mean, that was a that was a sad part. Yeah. Well, I wanna I wanna dive in here because you've said a lot of things that I think have struck chords with people. By the way, and, and, and on a side note, like after we're done with this, if you can like sign a piece of paper with just give me an autograph and send it to me because you're the first person I've met who's ever struggled with delegating. So I would really like to frame that <laughs> up here. Uh, every, so many leaders struggle to delegate. They feel like nobody can do it as good as me. They won't do it as fast as me. They won't get it right. But I heard, I heard Gary sharing this. He said, you know, what makes a great entrepreneur is that they see all the things that need to be done in the business and they are just good enough at doing each of them that the business gets off the ground. And then they trick themselves into thinking that they're actually great at all of them. And so they hoard them and hold on to them and eventually literally strangle the business and it dies. Yeah. Versus recognizing that there are people that can take something like marketing or operations and can do it better than you. They get more joy from doing it than you. And if you are willing to empower them to do the best that they can do, your life gets so much easier. Walk us through now that you're on the other side. 
what would you tell your former self? That version of you that didn't want to let go. Well, it's interesting because it wasn't that I didn't want to let go. So I don't fit that mold. Mm. Um, my problem the first time was that I let go so readily. I'd read E-Myth um, and I, I, I really bought off on the idea that I wanted to operate in my sweet spot, what I call my sweet spot, the, the, the Venn diagram. I think I got it from good to great. Um, with Jim Collins, um, you know, where I'm doing something that needs to be done that I'm passionate about that I'm really, really good at. I want to live in that place. Mm-hmm. I want to surround myself with people in that place. I didn't quite have that figured out uh, at a high level. But I, what I didn't understand was was the mechanics of delegation. I didn't yeah. understand how to let go. I was willing to let go and I let go pretty quickly. Uh, and I stayed in touch, kind of, you know, management by wandering around. I had a weekly lunch with my CEO, and I felt very connected. I trusted him. I think he was an honest man. I think the people I had working on the team all worked really hard and wanted to do a good job. But I really hadn't set them up for success. And it, it wasn't so much that I was micromanaging them. I, I just picked people who didn't have any experience in our business. And I didn't understand the importance of of not just staying connected with them and giving them the tools they need, but what it was really missing was the role of being the visionary. And what I learned as an entrepreneur is I walked around with a picture in my mind of what finished looked like, of what success Mm. was, of what it was going to look like, feel like, be like uh, when it was hitting on all eight cylinders. And I mistakenly assumed that because I saw it crystal clear that everybody else did. And then I tend to lean more towards entrepreneurial people over people who are employees because I just don't care for the employee mindset. I like to be around entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs are artists and they put their stamp on everything. And they have a slightly different vision. And so instead of having a really clear focused team and a clear focused process, a clear focused culture, a clear focused vision, it's it's fuzzy because you've got like eight different visions that are all trying to line up. And there's some things they have in common, but there's things they don't have in common. And of course, I didn't understand all of that the first time. And so the weakness in our model, the weakness in my leadership, the weakness in my ability to communicate a clear vision and put the right people on the bus converged with the worst financial crisis that we'd had in modern lifetime that was the epicenter was the business I was in, Mm -hmm. right? So it couldn't have been worse. And so the emotional repercussions of having to break my promises and let people go that were my friends, my family, I mean, my children, my father. I was just devastated emotionally. And I, I, it wasn't that I didn't want to let go because I didn't trust people and thought I was the best guy for the job. I never, ever wanted to fail anybody as a leader and, and, and cause them to lose their livelihood because, because I didn't put them in a position to win. And I was willing to bear the brunt of all that responsibility myself to mm-hmm. never be there again. But my wife's need kind of trumped all that and I I had to change. So to recap, it wasn't a fear of letting go. You just didn't want to be be actually responsible for other people's livelihoods again. Yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. Fast forward to where you are today. What do you now know about the one thing that you didn't realize when you first started to read it? 
Well, I mean, I think the one thing is a, it, 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 it's a way of life. It's a way of thinking. It, it, it's not a one and done. It wasn't like I had that one thing epiphany and I did the one thing and then I put the one thing away and I'm done one thinging. I mean, the whole concept of the one thing is every day, every hour, every reset. Like when I book my schedule, I, I book out what I'm going to do and then I have these breaks. Uh, Darren Hardy teaches about 90-minute jam sessions and I'll jam for 90 minutes and then I just got to decompress and rather than you know wander off, I stop and I, I have what I call a, a regroup and I have a meeting with myself and I ask myself, okay, now what's, out of all the things I could do, what's the one thing? <laughs> what's the one thing? And so it, it, it becomes part of your DNA if you let it and I think that you need to. And then it can't just be you, but it's got to be really everybody. It becomes part of your your culture. So, you know, and again, I'm not responsible for all of that right now. I'm responsible for the vision. But in my personal life, I, I one thing all the time. You talked about your 90-minute sessions where you get to kind of think and then having a time where you get to regroup. When you started doing that, was it effortless or did you notice... That it was actually hard. Like you can block time for yourself, but it's actually hard to honor it for yourself. You have no idea. So <laughs> oh, I do. If you, if I you've do. Ever, if you've ever heard Darren, <laughs> if you've ever heard Darren talk about it, I mean, he he's like literally. I, you know, here I am. Th- this is the hourglass, right? And you turn this baby over, and it goes for an hour, and you have to stay on task until the sand runs out. You can't deviate. You can't, you've got to stay focused. It's it there's a compression factor. It's like uh, learning, it's like learning to hold your breath, or it's like learning building endurance. How far can you walk or run? It, you, and and you actually have to condition yourself, your focus muscle, to be able to stay focused and on task. And I can't tell you, I can't do 90 minutes. I still can't do 90 minutes. Uh it's hard, but that's why you have to give yourself that that break time. Mm. Uh, and then it's easy to wander off in that break time and chase shiny objects. And that's why the one thing centers you uh, once again to get the most out of the next 90 minutes. And again, it just, it's, con- I wish I could tell you I had it down and I'm a master. I'm far from a master. I'm a Padawan at best. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, here, here's the pro tip for the people who are listening because they hear us talk a lot about having time blocked for thinking or for planning or for casting a vision. And when I talk to people and go, all right, how much time are you going to block? They go, oh, I'm going to block an hour. And I go, let me ask a different question. What's the one thing you can do? Like, oh, I'm going to do an hour. No. Sitting down with zero distractions, no email, no phone calls, no texts, no searching the internet with like pen and paper to really think and journal for an hour, you work up to that. Yeah, that I do. That I do. I get, yeah, up every, I get up every day at 4 a.m. By 4.15, I'm in my chair. And I go from 4.15. And um, I, I mean, literally, it's 90 minutes easy. And I can lose myself up to, to three hours. What do but, you do? What, how do you, you sit down, you grab the pen, you grab the paper. Then what do you do? Yeah. So uh, I, I put the date, obviously. And yeah. I use three-hole punch paper, which I carry with me everywhere. Uh, that has no lines on it because I don't like to be constrained. And then You're I such just... such an entrepreneur. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I do it on purpose, you know. So I, I, I've had a chance to be in several studies with uh, Robert Kiyosaki, who you know most people know for Rich Dad Poor Dad, or they know him to be a, a financial guy. But he is a personal development guy, and he really is probably the best teacher that I've ever known. And he talks about you know taking notes and using a lot of color and and engaging the creative side of your brain. And so I do that. And and I just write, and I find that the act of 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 writing, physically writing, not typing, but writing, mm. not just thinking and talking, but writing, slows me down. And I'm I'm literally thinking about every word as I go along, and and that that helps bring me focus. But I just start out, you know, the date and the time, and how much I weighed, and you know how I'm feeling. I do a little assessment about how I'm feeling. I have like six points that I just give a scale mm-hmm. of one to ten, see how I'm doing. And then, and then whatever's on my mind, I just start to write. Uh, when I was in creative writing class way back in high school, in fact, the school, the class where I met my wife, and she's my high school sweetheart, um, was creative writing. And that's who she used to, the teacher used to just make us write, just start writing, to write whatever's on your mind. Don't think, just write. And sometimes I sit down and I think I don't have that much on my mind. And then I'm shocked at what comes out. And I save all of these things in a, I have a big library of journals and I tape flag them all. And I not only have the journaling time, but I have booked um, to, to put away the journal, which means I go through everything I wrote, like I'm reading a book. The way I read books is I highlight it, I flag it, I glean the action items, I put them on a to-do list, and then I and then I archive it. And I also have an index I keep in a spreadsheet, so I'm like one of these really weirdo guys. And and I, I put down in the index where there was a key point or something, and then I, I just index that back to the date so I can go back to the original manuscript and find huh. out all of the emotion and thought process were behind whatever the bottom line action or, or idea or quote that I came up with. I dove here very purposefully because I'm in the middle of a 60-60 challenge of journaling every day. Because I I know you do not decide your ha- your future. You decide your habits. Your habits decide your futures. And I have formed some incredible keystone habits over the last five years. And as I looked up and realized early this year, we kicked off a 60-60 day challenge with our community. I knew journaling was next up for me. And so I have been pretty entrepreneurial with it about just trying to make it part of the daily routine, not a habit yet. But anytime I find somebody who has a regular practice of journaling, I dive in. Because just like you, huge fan of mentorship. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. I'd rather start where somebody else finished. So thank you for sharing that. That was the idea of flagging and highlighting and indexing. That's been my question mark about, great, now it's in my planner. What do I do with it? I I literally, I mean, when when we wrote our book, we we went to a retreat and we went to my buddy's cabin. We thought we could bang the book out in three days. We were so arrogant. Um, we we mapped out that <laughs> the thing and we started writing and we're both writing and we're writing this book about real estate investing. And then and then by day three, and we were pulling like 12, 14 hour days. We weren't even showering. It was gamey. I mean, we were just going for it. And on the third day, I woke up. And all of a sudden, an idea just popped into my mind to write a story, like an allegory about investing. And I did it. And literally, as I was writing it, I didn't know what was going to happen. I had no theme. I had no story. I was making the story up as I went along. It was literally flowing out of me. It was surreal. And I couldn't wait to start writing again to find out what was going to happen. And that experience taught me that when you really tap into that 
subconscious mind mm. and you just start writing without an agenda, without anything, just let it flow, that you literally are going to pull brilliance out of yourself and it's almost third person. So when I read my own journaling, it is like I'm reading someone else's book and I study my own journaling the same way I study other people's book. I mean, if you looked at Gary's book, it's all highlighted and dog-eared and noted. And I've got little circles that mean there's an action item in there uh, for me to do. And I read my own journaling that way because I found out that after decades of being around brilliant people and being a voracious reader and spending time to think kind of a lot, that there's a lot in there that you don't really are, aren't conscious of. And if you will just start getting it out, mm-hmm. really good stuff comes. I'm like, wow. I did. And then I go, I, I, I look up the quote. I, I try to find out. I must have heard that somewhere else because that's so good. And a lot of times, a lot of times it is. It's like, oh yeah, I, I got that from this person. I'd forgotten that I'd read that or whatever. But sometimes I look up something. I'm like, I can't find it anywhere. That got, That's a Russ Gray original. Wow, that's a good one. And so I you know, started my own little quote collection. I've given myself permission to 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 be you know a, a mentor if you will even to myself and I, I think you have to do that. I love that. Well, I, I have gotten profound value in thinking time in terms of any time over the last few years when I have felt lost, anxious, unclear. I know if I grab a pen and a piece of paper and write a question at the top of the paper and give myself even honestly five minutes, I can get an immense amount of clarity and then move forward with wicked confidence and. I have an opportunity to take it to the next level, which is where this is helping me. So Russ, where can people learn more about you and the real estate guys? Well, I don't know that I'm all that interesting, but the real estate guys, uh, pretty good. If you're interested in real estate, real estate investing in particular, and we look at it from, you know, not just doing deals. We probably spend more time understanding the context of what's going on in the economy and making good strategic portfolio decisions and using real estate as the foundation of a real asset portfolio. But we're at realestateguysradio.com, realestateguysradio.com. And uh, we've got a YouTube channel. We've got our podcast. We do a weekly newsletter. So we're easy to find. Just look us up online and you'll find us. Awesome. Well, Russ, thanks so much for, for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with Russell Gray. I can really empathize with the journey that Russell has been on. As our business has continued to scale, I have gotten more and more clear on what my 20% priorities are that will drive 80% of the results. And being able to build models and systems and recruit the talent into our world, they can take that off of my plate. At times, it's challenging. Yet when you do it, it is so, so liberating. It's amazing. It's like going to Disneyland. I love it. And by seeking leverage, by finding that one person that you're missing. It's amazing how you suddenly find yourself able to invest your time in the things that matter most. Whether that be sitting down with a pen and paper to journal, whether it be getting in front of a whiteboard to cast a vision, amazing things become possible when you invest your time in the 20% activities that drive the majority of your results. What are your 20% priorities? If you had to ask the question, what are the two to three things I have to do exceptionally well for my role? Otherwise, I don't earn the right to keep my job. What would those things be? And how can you begin the journey to having your calendar reflect those priorities? 
If you'd like to learn more about how to go on that journey, head over to theonething.com slash training. On the training page, you can learn more about our community of thousands of people who are on the journey to living the one thing. And if you're inside an organization under the corporate section, you can learn more about how we help companies create this culture where people are clear on the things that matter most and do the things that matter most and learn how to say no to everything else. If this episode has brought value to you, think of a person who you know needs to hear it and please share it with them. If you're new to the show, click the subscribe button so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device of choice. And while you're at it, if you would consider leaving us a rating and review, it would just mean the world. We read every single one and it helps us reach more people, which allows us to fulfill our purpose, which is to help you better invest your time so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.